This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. All this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Thad Haight. Hi Thad, how are you doing? I'm alright, how are you? I'm not too bad. I'm looking forward to talking to you about a special interest of both of ours and I think uh, all of our Primitive Culture listeners, uh, which is Star Trek, but looking (laughs) at it from a particular angle that I think should be an interesting one to tackle. Yes, So the topic that we're looking at today really is neurodiversity Mm -hmm. uh, in Star Trek, also perhaps in Star Trek fandom, because I think there's definitely uh, a certain amount of overlap there. Oh, yeah. Um, And I think this is is a really interesting topic. I have to say, it's not something that I had thought about a huge amount until a few years ago when I started going to conventions um, and listening to the kind of questions that the actors were being asked. You know, I've seen uh, Brent Spiner fielding quite a lot of questions about data and neurodiversity. Jerry Ryan similarly talking about uh, Seven of Nine and neurodiversity. And I guess maybe this is something that's come about sort of in the last few years, certainly not when those shows were on the air originally, maybe as much uh, in the 90s. Um, But I think it's a really interesting one because these days, Definitely, there are a lot of characters in Star Trek who one can read. Uh, I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about queer coding. We can read Mm -hmm. them definitely as kind of neurodiverse uh, coded, uh, if not explicitly neurodiverse characters. Yes, and plenty who may not have been coded that way by the writers, but can certainly be read that way regardless. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a really interesting aspect of going back, you know, those of us who uh, are somewhat obsessed with Star Trek and going back to them (laughs) over the years and over the decades. I mean, you know, with the trill in Deep Space Nine, uh, a lot of people these days see Jadzia Dax as a trans character. Now, I don't feel that people back in the 90s uh, were thinking along those terms. So I suppose it's partly just about our own ideas about different identities and different kinds of people developing and then being able to see that um, in some of those characters. But I wanted to talk to you because I'm kind of curious uh, what your own experiences are with Star Trek and with neurodiversity and how those have sort of fed into each other over the years. Sure. Uh, So it's funny, uh, you may or may not have intended it as a joke at the beginning when you said a special interest of ours is Star Trek. because It was uh, a deliberate joke, yeah. Okay. (laughs) That was intentional on my part. (laughs) I wasn't sure, honestly. But that's Uh, okay, because humor humor can be subjective, and (laughs) sometimes these things are unclear, and you know. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> and that, that that's a whole other neurodiversity can of worms. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, because obviously, uh, for various forms of neurodiversity, which by the very term is defined, it means there are a lot of different things that make one neurodiverse, obviously, because that's what diversity means. Uh, but for, uh, for autistic people in particular, and uh, to some extent for ADHD as well, uh, a special interest is something that you do become very obsessed is the best, probably the best way to describe it of various things. And yes, Star Trek is certainly one of mine. Uh, I am on the autistic spectrum myself. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was probably around 14 or 15. Uh, but Certainly, even before that, like, I mean, it wasn't like I was I was very much a different child from the neurotypical people. Uh, So for me, I. As a child, certainly related very much to uh, data on Star Trek TNG, because I saw him in a very similar situation where he was trying to fit in and learn about human behavior and interaction in from in from a way of someone who does not fully understand how it works and that was definitely something that resonated with me having a very similar experience even if I didn't really know what it was yet at that time 
That's really interesting. So when did you, had you already started watching Star Trek when you got that diagnosis? And yes. Did that kind of, did you make that connection at the time? Uh, so I had, I started watching Star Trek when I was seven, I believe. Uh, had watched, uh, my older sister actually introduced me to it because she was into Star Trek as well. And yeah, I watched, uh, first started watching TNG, but TNG and TOS were both on, uh, in syndication every night, um, during the week. So I would watch a, a lot. Uh, this was in the, in the early to mid nineties, uh, I, cause when I was seven, it would have been 93. So like right before, right, right as TNG was finishing up, but I wasn't watching like the new episodes. I was watching the syndicated ones. Uh, but then I got into DS nine and Voyager, uh, DS nine starting with season three and Voyager from the beginning. So yeah, I was, I was very much a, an obsessed Trekkie long before I knew that I was autistic. Um, <laughs> But yes, when when I, I got that diagnosis, and it had been a sort of thing. Like my parents had, you know, done all sorts of things to try to, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, to find out what was wrong is the wrong thing. But you know, to find out what was what was different or about me. What was because, up? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because and uh, I was I was diagnosed with ADHD much younger, but. Autism was just not something that was part of the cultural zeitgeist much in the in the mid nineties. It wasn't until the late nineties, early two thousands that that became a thing that people really talked about. And when you did talk about it back then, you thought about uh, people on, I guess we would say, the other end of the spectrum, with, who nonverbal people, people who that sort of thing. So for the for People like me, who at the time of my diagnosis uh, were were diagnosed with what was what used to be referred to as Asperger syndrome, now is not considered a separate form of autism and really shouldn't be called Asperger syndrome since Hans Asperger was, you know, a Nazi. Um, <laughs> but uh, for people like me, that just was not considered a th- thing. If you were if you were able to talk and function in society more or less like you could communicate with people you could you could read you could write you could do all these things that that was not generally even thought of as autistic until the the late 90s is when that really started becoming a thing uh so that's when i i got my diagnosis and yeah uh, as describing that sort of thing it all sort of fell into place a lot of my behaviors a lot of my the things that i had loved and seen yeah i i definitely was i definitely saw how that related to the way that i saw myself in characters like data or odo or spock or the emh on voyager that sort of thing who interestingly when we think about star trek are classically the most popular characters i mean there is something striking about that isn't there (laughs) and and i do wonder kind of anecdotally it feels like I mean, this is a massive stereotype. I, I suppose, insofar as like all the jocks at school are into football or whatever, <laughs> there is a kind of you know the geeks and the nerds who are into Star Trek. There is probably more neurodiversity among those kind of uh, communities or yes. those groups. Um, so maybe there's maybe there's a kind of obvious uh, parallel there. I don't know, but I think I, I think it's really interesting that particularly, yeah, people kind of gravitate towards those characters. Uh, I mean, maybe everyone does. Y- you know, I, I certainly gravitated to all those characters and I don't know whether I that's... I think it's a- <laughs> some of that. Yeah. Some of that. And I think part of it is also those are the interesting characters. Yeah. Those are the yeah. characters that are not your standard normal normal okay i don't want to say normal mm-hmm. your bog standard typical typical human character uh they're more boring uh the char- data is a fascinating character uh he he's just much more interesting generally i think so i think even for a neurotypical person they would they would see that and find that character to be more interesting than the characters than like jordy laforge or mm-hmm. Riker or even Picard to some extent. Or Harry Kim. Uh, certainly <laughs> Harry Kim. Like no one ha- 
I won't say no one. Very few people have looked at Harry Kim and said, oh, that's an interesting character. Yeah, yeah. Garrett Wong, maybe. but uh, Garrett yeah, Wong is yeah, way no, more interesting than Harry Kim. Harry Kim. That is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they'd probably be in a minority. Um, interestingly, though, uh, Picard, I think, is a character who you could say in some ways, or in some episodes at least, has you know flashes of, of, oh, kind yeah. of neurodiversity <laughs> about him um i mean there are there, there there are episodes where people say to him you know you're like a robot you're like a vulcan you're kind of you know he's 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 not a kirk or a riker or a kind of he's not a jock let's put it that way you know he's he's yeah he's definitely got some of those qualities interpersonal he's very skills into are special not, interests isn't he are yeah. not always <laughs> his forte uh no small so, talk yes, is, I, is a struggle he can do diplomatic you yeah. know he can he can do the kind of big interaction stuff, but on the smaller level, definitely there's a bit of a challenge there. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting because with Picard, I guess particularly you know with the new series, the Picard series, uh, some of that stuff is being kind of brought round to trauma, and you know, and there's a lot of trauma for Picard on various uh, about around various things, I suppose, um, and some of these kind of diagnostic categories and so on. I suppose there can be. Uh, uncertainty between you, you know what's neurodevelopmental what's where's the boundary between that and kind of mental health for example uh, mm-hmm. and anxiety and you, you know all these kind of different elements um, and I think it's really interesting when you were talking about you know in the 90s ADHD was kind of sort of having a moment I mean I remember oh, yeah. that my aunt was diagnosed with ADHD uh, around that time while she was working for Microsoft at the time and everyone <laughs> literally everyone in her office and most of their kids were on Ritalin at the time and it was like a big thing oh it was the um, wonder drug but yeah yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so that was definitely kind of uh in the I don't know that that was that that was part of that era I suppose but yeah I guess um autism in particular you know there historically there was a lot of stigma I think and mm-hmm. that is gradually you know, hopefully being kind of chipped away at and people's understandings of, you know, what this spectrum is that we're talking about and what that means are developing. But um, definitely, you know, there are parallels, I think, with the kind of trans, uh, you know, experience in some ways. These these are different identities that we're, we're kind of getting to understand more. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, certainly historically, a lot of stigma. There's a lot of politics. I mean, the uh like you were saying you know not using the word asperger's well a few years ago lots of people would have used the word asperger's yeah. i mean i'm by no means uh an expert on any of this i i do have people in my family who are autistic and also who have adhd as i say so i have some familiarity with um with some of this but i'm sort of conscious of the the politics and of trying to get these things right and not to offend anyone and not mm-hmm. to you know uh, <laughs> use the wrong language or say the wrong thing or whatever because- and there are still Many people who do use Asperger's, there are people who will tell you they have Asperger's, and that's that's the term they want to use. And then, and I mean, if someone wants to use that term to describe themselves, far be it for me to speak otherwise. I would personally, I uh, go with the way that it has been categorized as just part of the autism spectrum, uh, especially with the information that came to light within the last five, ten years about the experiments that that Hans Asperger did on children for the Nazis. I mean, sure, don't yeah. really want to associate myself with his name. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> for sure. Um, well, for what it's worth, I have, uh, in an attempt to kind of educate myself, I've pulled up a copy of the DSM-5 on my mm-hmm. screen, uh, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, I think is what it stands for. It's like the the the, the, the massive, great textbook uh for diagnosing all these sorts of things so i just thought i'd I'd pull it up and have a look um Mm -hmm. at some of the kind of definitions and see what uh what in star trek they might kind of inspire so just looking at autism spectrum disorder uh i'll read you the the brief definition you can jump in and tell me if you think any of this is is total nonsense or (laughs) whatever or it doesn't doesn't fit with your experience at all but anyway it says autism spectrum disorder is characterized by persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts including deficits in social reciprocity non-verbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction and skills in developing maintaining and understanding relationships in addition to the social communication deficits the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder requires the presence of restricted repetitive patterns of behavior interest or activities those i guess are the like the special interests that we were talking about like being obsessed with star trek and <laughs> talking about star trek the whole time uh which you know i think we can all uh relate to one way or another <laughs> but 
but but I guess the main thing that jumps out is this: it's the social element, isn't it? And that's why <laughs> someone like Data, I think, feels so perfect as a yeah. kind of uh, like like as effectively an autistic character. Because first of all, you've got this kind of empathy question because he supposedly doesn't have emotions. Although I know some people argue that he clearly does have emotions, and it's all a sort of you know he thinks he doesn't have emotions, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm in does that he camp. really. He which, definitely yeah, okay, has so emotions. So that's a that's an interesting <laughs> debate, and which also relates to you know some people think autistic people don't have emotions. That's also not true, but it's about how are they expressed, how are they understood, etc. But definitely with data uh, that, that he has social communication problems let's say uh certainly if you think of like early you know season one season two kind of data that is a lot of his character comes down to misunderstandings failed attempts at humor uh not getting you know um turns of phrase taking things literally all these kind of things that are sort of classic uh autism traits yeah and data specifically with the vis-a-vis the emotions uh that in and of itself is very very familiar for artistic people because yes data reacts in many ways that it that show that he does in fact have emotions he just doesn't understand emotions he doesn't understand the and i think the emotion chip gives him more obvious interaction with his emotions but before he has the emotion chip he definitely demonstrates various emotions it's just he doesn't know how to communicate those emotions and he doesn't know how to understand them, which is in and of itself an autistic trait. Uh, autistic people definitely have emotions. Uh, and we also have empathy. That's another, uh, that's another, uh, stereotype that is not true. We, we do have empathy. We just, sometimes have trouble understanding our own emotions. So don't always understand someone else's, but with something bad happens to someone, we can, understand how that would make us feel and we can definitely empathize uh so but it's very much a, a thing that with autistic people i can't always tell you how i'm feeling i am feeling certain ways uh and there are times when when i will have an emotion emotions will just sort of seethe under the surface that i don't really follow until at some point they they burst. Now, obviously, that's not a data thing, um, but it is an autistic thing. And a lot of times I can't fully explain, even to myself, much less to other people, how something makes me feel. I mean, many times, I, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. And I would say that that's something that people with autism tend to get at least somewhat better at over time, just learning, you know, coping mechanisms or at least making it appear as though we're more in touch with our own feelings and whatnot but if someone asks me how i feel heck if i know like spock in uh yes in exactly Four, of course just another I do not how do you feel that is the <laughs> yeah exactly that is uh and, and i think that's a really interesting one. i mean people talk about spock as an autistic character as well i think in that film in particular that sort of comes to the fore in some ways because of the kind of, I was going to say memory loss, it's not exactly memory, because of everything he's been through, he seems uh, less, he's less sort of confident, he's less himself, he's less sort of authoritative. So there is this, there's this more of this kind of naivety, this sort of data quality, uh, which I guess is something that you do, um, you know, sometimes see in autistic people, especially in autistic children, for example, there is a kind of often a sort of naivety relative to their peers who are more streetwise or more cynical um, and so on. So I, I think definitely that, that kind of characterization sort of seems to fit that model um, in some ways. And obviously, you know, the Vulcans, obviously people could argue that the whole of Vulcan is, is autistic <laughs> in, <a laughs> yes. sense, in that their whole, you know, because they have this sort of attitude about, about emotions. But obviously they do have, again, they have emotions, they express them differently, they deal with them differently, they process them differently. I think when it comes to data, it's this interesting question, isn't it? Is, yes, on some sort of literal level, we have to accept because the writers keep telling us data doesn't have emotions and we have to, and Troy doesn't feel anything from him. And, you you, you know, there's there's some reality on which someone either does or doesn't have emotions and data doesn't have them, whatever they are, however we understand them. But at the same time, the way the stories are written, maybe this kind of goes to the whole, you know, the Roddenberry box and the, the kind of conflict between 
the sort of theory of Star Trek and the uh, actual reality of Star Trek, uh, over and over again, you have these moments where they sort of only really make sense if he does kind of have some emotion. And we certainly we empathise with Data, uh, even though he claims that he doesn't feel anything. Uh, they use it for dramatic irony. I'm just thinking in Data's day. I mean, there's lots of examples of this, but there's definitely an example there where he says, you know, oh, if I had emotions, I think I'd be a bit worried by this. Or, you know, it's these kind of things. Well, what on earth kind of a statement is that? Because right. he's he's clearly indicating that. And, you know, the music underscoring it is probably indicating the same thing and so on. So I don't know. I think it's like this weird... It does almost come down to the kind of allegorical side of Star Trek. You know, it, is Jadzia Dax a trans character? Is she allegorically a trans character? Is she literally a trans character? Is Data uh, maybe not literally neurodiverse because he's an android? Is he? Do, do you know what I mean? Does he literally not have emotions? I don't know. I, I feel like all these questions sort of come up, maybe partly when we try to read uh, what's going on in Star Trek rather than just taking everything at face value. Um because a lot of these things are kind of operating on multiple levels. And even, as you say, you know, levels that the writers may not have been conscious of, that the actors probably weren't conscious of. I mean, it's interesting, Jerry Ryan now, playing Seven, is aware that Seven is seen as, you know, a neurodiverse character. Yeah. But I don't think she was 20-odd years ago. And I don't know whether that um, impacts the actor in terms of, you know, performing something like that, whether there's something that they're conscious of. Because Seven, I've seen lots of interesting discussions about Seven in Picard and the way that at certain moments she becomes more like the kind of old Seven, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, more, not unemotional exactly, but slightly more stilted, slightly more kind of rigid. Um, And I think that is, you know, I I don't know if that's your experience, but certainly that's something that I've... uh, experience with people on the autism spectrum that that it varies you know that it can vary from um depending on anxiety depending on other kind of mental health things that some, sometimes people can that this thing of like you know presenting emotions or whatever it can vary in terms of how that's presented or how that person comes across mm-hmm. um and i think that is assuming that's a deliberate choice on jerry ryan's part or maybe an unconscious choice i don't know it seems quite interesting that that sort of plays into that that there's an element of um whether that's to do with it being a kind of constriction or if it's to do with, you know, you sort of alluded to the idea of masking. Mm-hmm. Is it that, uh, you know, Seven of Nine in Picard is is much more competent at masking and kind of presenting herself in a more neurotypical way? Or is it that traumatic, difficult, stressful situations uh, immediately kind of reconnect to those sort of... Uh, slightly more restricted ways of of interacting i don't know but it's but it's interesting i think that it's again you know this is a character that again is sort of raising all these questions uh yeah and i don't know if it's i think it may be a combination of the two i think some of it is mm-hmm. masking and i think some of it is just in the 20 odd years between the end of voyager and picard she has become more <laughs> assimilated into human culture mm-hmm. and is just more used to that sort of thing. But I think the fact that she does sort of go back to the old seven in a stressful situation shows that it may be somewhat masking, but it may just be the way people are. Cause I know a lot, <coughs> excuse me. I know a lot of people, for instance, uh, who have grown up with one particular pattern of speech, but have, adopted another will often revert to their to the accent that they first had when as a child in a stressful situation so i feel like it's the same sort of thing there yeah uh now it's interesting with jerry ryan yes i don't uh she has definitely said in interviews that she did not see it when she was playing seven uh but she actually has an an autistic daughter Mm -hmm. so she now definitely recognizes that and sees how it has that impact on people. That's really interesting. It makes me think as well that there's something about Seven that reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you watched 24, but that was on kind of around the same time, I guess, kind of uh, maybe a little bit after Voyager. But there's the character of Chloe in 24, who I think a lot of people took as an autistic coded character, although nothing is ever, you know, discussed. But and for her, it comes across as this slightly uh, 
she's quite grumpy. She, that, that's the main thing. I say, I'd say for like the first, I don't know, like the first season or two that she's in, she mainly just seems to be in a mood the whole time. But she's very impatient with people. It, it all comes out in quite sort of negative things. But it's interesting. Then you have someone like Sylvia Tilly. I've seen a lot of people saying, is she um, uh-huh. an autistic character? Obviously, completely the opposite. You know, extroverted, extremely friendly, uh, very sort of guileless. But that is also something that I, I have noticed um, with kids anyway, that with girls, I mean, this is going to be a massive generalisation, but it does seem like <laughs> um, often with boys, it, it it pushes towards directions of like, or at least what you see, and this may again be about masking, you see it come out in terms of frustration, rigidity, uh, kind of finding the world infuriating in various ways in girls it often seems to come out in terms of uh actually being extremely sociable and warm and friendly but kind of guileless and sort of unusually forthcoming do you know what i mean um yeah lacking that kind of reserve that sort of streetwise whatever it is um so it is that kind of naivety in a sense um and obviously that's as i say a massive generalization and those girls probably you know get home and are grumpy as hell and <laughs> you know etc but, but i do think that there are these different presentations i suppose um and maybe they are gendered to some extent or tend to be gendered to some extent as well i think yeah for to some extent yes and i think but another part of it in general is just different people are different uh so it is certainly possible for one person to view to to view things one way and one person to do it another way uh so you can certainly have a very <laughs> grumpy person or you can have an outgoing person and in the same way that neurotypical there can be oh yeah <laughs> grumpy people and outgoing <laughs> yeah. people it's the same thing for for autistic people we're not all the same person uh <laughs> yeah sure no of course of and course. that's the one thing that it is it is a spectrum so there are there are Autistic traits that apply to some, but not all of people. Uh, so there are many things that some people have that other people don't, and that's uh, th- that's how that how it works basically. Uh, so I definitely the the moment Tilly came on screen on Discovery, I definitely picked up on her appearing to be coded as neurodivergent, mm-hmm. and that's because of her sort of. Um she talks too much she goes on about stuff she, she, is, that, is that is that what it is it's like the kind of bubbly uh she she's not always following she swears for example doesn't she uh and then stamets says no it's okay you know um but there's yes. a, she, she she's not sufficiently well not sufficiently she, she she doesn't necessarily follow all the same social rules as everyone else she gets so excited exactly. about what's going on in her own sort of bubble that she um oversteps those marks to some extent yes that that's exactly it and she she's uh for lack of a better word she's very awkward mm-hmm. and that sort of thing is very much a, a neurodivergent thing i would say i am much less awkward today in my 30s mm-hmm. than i used to be but anyone who knew me as a child or a teenager would certainly recognize a lot of tilly in, in the way I would behave back then. Uh, and I I would say that a lot of it is just, it's through learned behavior and reinforced behavior and masking to a degree. I have trouble with the concept of masking because I can't tell where the mask ends mm. and I begin at this point. Like, I don't know how much of it is truly masking or just having learned to behave in certain ways Mm. like i understand i understand what masking is and there are certainly some things that i i do but in a lot of ways it just if you mask for long enough it just basically be sort of becomes you in in for many things not for everything certainly but for a lot of things a lot of my own personal quirks and whatnot i've i would say that it's not that different like it's it it some of it is mas- some things that may have started out as masking just sort of turned into regular behavior, mm. and that's one of the one of one of the therapies for autism is repeated repetitive behavior, uh, and there are <laughs> that can be controversial. Uh, pretty much every treatment of autism is controversial in one way or another, mm. <laughs> um, but in a lot of 
it does help in a lot of ways, especially for someone to interact with with society who expect people to behave in a certain way. Mm. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good, but that's how it works. I think that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I would say to some extent, I don't know. I mean, maybe my understanding of masking isn't isn't quite all there, but like everyone presents themselves in certain ways in different situations. Mm-hmm. And some of those require more energy sure. and are more genuine than others. I mean, if we're podcasting, we are talking in a <laughs> different way to how we might if we were just having a drink in the pub or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a consciousness and it's not that different, but it's different enough that I'm conscious, you know, when I turn the microphone on, a sort of part of my brain wakes up a little bit more. Uh, you know, it's it's a performance to some extent. And I suppose that's true of, you know, any social interaction uh, is a performance relative to just, you know, loafing around in bed or whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So um, I don't know, maybe it's just, it's kind of an extension of that. But I suppose the difference is uh, a lot of, you know, neurodivergent people find, uh, I suppose, maybe are conscious of the masking and, and there's an awareness that it takes a toll and that it is exhausting and it's draining. Um, mm-hmm. And that I guess the question, you know, when you were saying about these controversial therapies, yeah, it's sort of, is the therapy about trying to make you seem different to how you are do you know what I mean to seem more like other people and I was going to ask you actually you know with someone like data I mean is it a problem that data appears to be a sort of effectively a neurodivergent character who obsessively wants to be neurotypical he wants to be human as the, you know as they put it he's he's the kind of Pinocchio story and obviously Star Trek has this kind of um real sort of human chauvinism uh to some extent i mean it gets pulled up in in the undiscovered country you, you know this kind of this idea that being human is being best but i think you know over and over again there is this kind of sense that you know oh it would be it's it's worth anything if i can you know suffer and and emote and, and all these kind of things that's much better than being the kind of cool uh collected um you know supposedly emotionless one so for data that's the that's the goal that is to become more human to become more sort of neurotypical in some ways i don't know is that a problem to some extent that star trek is kind of that these characters other than odo i think odo is kind of the exception and and spock to some extent because they're both kind of quite satisfied to a certain degree with who they are well i think even odo tries he does uh, especially he does does. if you look at uh if especially uh when you look at his relationship with kira uh he he tries very hard in, the, in those instances and i think and he literally i mean if you talk about masking odo is literally uh, masking <laughs> yes. all the time isn't he and you know when he gets exhausted he can't keep it up anymore and he you know dissolves into a puddle of goo doesn't he he literally can't um the mask you know requires more energy than he has at a certain point yeah i never thought of it that way but yes that very much could be interpreted that way uh i think to some extent, yes, it can, you can see that as a problem, but I I think many uh, autistic people would would tell you that they want to be that they they empathize with data wanting to be part of that same group, yeah, uh, and and seen as you know, and not necessarily seen as different, so. I, I would say for me personally, I, yeah, I, I would, if I were, I wouldn't know how to not mask completely in a social situation. And I don't think anyone should. I mean, in general, that's just how we do social situations. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned, cause you mentioned podcasting. Yeah. It's like podcasting. Absolutely. I turn on the, I will stop swearing for the next hour filter <laughs> when I start podcasting. Uh, oh, we appreciate that. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, <laughs> It definitely can, it it definitely could be seen as problematic, and I think it's important for people to be true to themselves, but at the same time, it is not necessarily wrong to want to fit in, and as long as you're not doing something that is false to your own self, uh, then it's fine. I I don't see a problem with it in and of itself. Uh, I will say that that and combined with the fact that I'm generally pretty introverted means that social interaction is 
well, I can, I, I definitely in 2020 learned that I do need it, um, is, <laughs> can be very draining. And, uh, I don't, uh, tend to hang around in very social situations for extended periods of time because of that. Sure. And that's interesting. And that also is something, uh, that Seven of Nine certainly can relate to. Uh, I was looking at the yes. episode Human Error and there's a line where Tuvok says to her, uh, basically, we both, can't remember, we, we, he says, I share your discomfort with social gatherings. There's a sense that they, and they, mm-hmm. and they both try to make excuses to sort of get out of these social situations. I think with data, it's interesting. I was watching the episode Tin Man recently, um, which I think mm-hmm. is, uh, and, uh, some people I think have seen the character of Tam Elbron as, interestingly, I mean, obviously he is, he's not just empathic. He's telepathic. He's kind of a hyper empath, but he definitely, uh, has that sense of kind of um, like autistic burnout. You might, you might think of it as, I mean, mm-hmm. he's very like, but being around other people is incredibly draining for him. He finds it exhausting. He, he feels overwhelmed by it. Um, he's been hospitalized for stress, which is interesting because there's also quite a significant kind of correlation between neurodiversity and uh, mental health and anxiety and depression and these, these kind of things. Oh, yeah. um, so I thought that was quite interesting in terms of that character, but he says something very interesting to data because he, I think sees data, you know, wanting to be more human uh, and questions it a little bit. And he says, he says to data, perhaps you're just different. It's not a sin, you know, although you might've heard otherwise. So that feels like that is Star Trek kind of just seeding this little idea, you know, uh, that maybe, I don't know, maybe being human and emotional and, and all this stuff is not all it's cracked up to be. I don't know. And obviously there is this big, uh, question, you know, data wants to be, data feels like he's less than everyone else on that crew, but everyone knows he's the, he's the most, he's the character we all love. Do you know what I mean? Like he's the most sort of perfect, mm-hmm. the most kind of decent. I mean, you said, you know, it's important to be honest to yourself. He's the most, there's even that episode. Thine own self, isn't there? You, you know, to thine own self be true. He's the most uh, true to himself at all times. He's he's sort of incapable yes. of uh, of not being true to himself in a sense. Um, in first contact, he has that line. You know, he was tempted for zero point six eight seconds or whatever it is. You know, that, that's that's the kind of for absolute, an Android, that's an exactly. But that's the absolute maximum of data's kind of. Uh, not being true to himself and not being the best version of himself at all times. So uh, there is that sort of weird irony there. I think that he he thinks that everyone else has something that he doesn't have, but actually he's the one that we should all really sort of be aspiring to be in some ways. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely accurate. And I think that's part of how the show, it shows us like it shows us data striving to be more human, but at the same time, the the rest of his crew, his friends, accept him for who he is, and that's the that's the important thing and the important message that we get there. That's the the thing that meant so much to me when I was a kid watching Star Trek. Right, that's interesting. What that they that they don't judge him, they don't mock him, they don't actually. Interestingly, they don't treat him apart from maybe Pulaski. <laughs> and I feel like in the early seasons, there are a few times they they get a bit they get a bit. Uh, frustrated with him sometimes when he's sort of going on and on. Uh, but yes, absolutely. You're right. They, they respect him. They love him. They, you know, he's very much, uh, one of them. Um, in a way that say Barclay, when he's first introduced, isn't actually, I think that's an interesting point of mm-hmm. comparison. You know, Barclay also has a lot of kind of neurodivergent qualities. Oh, yeah. And he, to begin with, is pretty much maybe bullied is going a bit far, but he, he's, you know, they, they don't treat him well recognizing that he's different from them yeah. they they're, they're not very accommodating of that um to begin with i feel like as, as time goes on barclay becomes sort of more respected and more um beloved but certainly to begin with it's it's a source of friction the fact that he's different yes very much and that's uh episode that could be hard for me to watch for that exact reason that said i do very much empathize with barclay barclay is a character that i can certainly feel like I understand very well because of that, but the sh- the crew does show growth where Barkley is concerned, yeah. and they even in that episode they 
come to accept him. And the same is true with Pulaski and Data. If you look at Pulaski's character growth throughout season two of, of TNG, we start off, we start off in the child where she's mispronouncing his name. And then we end in peak performance where she is championing him and telling him, you know, pushing him to continue with the, with the competition in the stratagema there. And because she knows that he can do it, that he is, she definitely turn turns a page and views him as another person. That is something that she did not believe in the beginning, which obviously that was a pretty horrible opinion of hers to have at the beginning, but it showed character growth. And I think we get the same thing with Barkley by, even by the end of Hollow Pursuits, they are accepting him. Like, that's how the episode ends. And then in the later episodes, where Barkley has uh, other issues, they help him. Yeah. And they accept him. And he's definitely become one of them. And then uh, we continue on. I think some of Barkley's best episodes are in Voyager. Um, except that one with the Ferengi. That was bad. Um, but... <laughs> and I think... It, it continues in uh, Pathfinder. Uh, we see how Barclay's direct superior uh, very much has Barclay's best interest at heart. He's trying to help him in every way he can. And I think that shows, again, that these people who are not necessarily the same as everyone else are still accepted in Federation society. Absolutely. And... Uh... Yeah, I think there is an interesting trajectory there. I personally, and this is probably a more controversial view, I think that that episode, uh, whichever one it is, a Voyager with Barclay and Troy in it, is probably one of the best Deanna Troy episodes, aside from being a great Barclay episode. It's a very good Deanna Troy episode. I agree with you on they, that. It's like they, they finally work out how to use her kind of superpowers in a way that makes sense and feels uh, still believable. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think in some ways those characters, maybe it is partly that with someone like Barclay, they they bring him in. They're not necessarily quite sure what they're doing with him. I mean, obviously, he is primarily a comedy character, I suppose. Certainly, mm. I always used to think, you know, watching Next Gen, you know, when it, in first run, I would sort of think, oh, yeah, it's, it's that funny guy. You, you know, it's going to be a kind of comedy episode with that that silly guy, basically. Do you know what I mean? That, that, and this was my, this was me as a child kind of interpreting it. Oh, sure. That's how I saw oh, it. Oh, I, I, I felt the same way. Ter- a bit like, like Sana Troy is, you, you know, you knew she's going to turn up and there's going to be kind of mayhem and hijinks and, and it's all going to be a bit. Silly. It's not going to be a, you know, serious, uh, big, uh, deep philosophical issue type episode. Um, and I suppose there's an element of that as well with, you know, with someone like Data. A lot of these traits, they are played for laughs. I mean, for example, the taking things literally. I think it's in in theory uh, when Data is kind of pursuing romance and he goes to get advice um, and he, he, he says to, Guinan, I require advice. And she says, don't look at me. And he literally looks away. He doesn't look yes. at me. You know, takes things literally on such a like. Uh, and sometimes with data, I think it can be a bit inconsistent insofar as you think, you know, really in like however many years on this ship, you haven't heard that expression or you haven't. Do you know what I mean? Like he can, the things that he apparently doesn't know, despite having been in Starfleet for a certain period of time, are sometimes a bit surprising. Um, but I think there is that element that, that, that him, him taking things literally, him misunderstanding, uh, usually is played for laughs. The, the other instance of it that I don't know why this struck me when I first watched it, and I thought it was really interesting, is in Who Watches the Watchers, where, is it Riker is on the planet? Well, one of them anyway, they're, they're basically communicating and the only communication can be through kind of um, non-verbal noises. Uh, and data doesn't understand what they mean. So, you know, they ask a question and Riker's like, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, uh, making these kind of noises that, that everyone understands. And I think that's quite interesting because those are, you know, one, one of these elements of, um, uh, the sort of diagnostic categories is about nonverbal communication, gesture, mm-hmm. facial expression, body language, tone of voice, all these sorts of things. I, I just thought that was quite interesting, that scene. Uh, and I don't know why it stuck with me over the years that, someone else has to literally translate for him what those 
communications mean that we, you know, that we as the viewer, or at least as the presumed viewer, understand, but he needs, um, despite being this very, very intelligent, I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, data is like the smartest guy on the ship by a million miles. Uh, despite knowing everything, uh, he can't, tra- he, he has to have these things sort of translated for him in order to understand what they mean. And that's, that's definitely a good representation of what it can be, be like in, uh, to be neurodivergent. I mean, uh, yeah, body language is a big one. Uh, and, uh, inferring things that are not stated, l- taking things literally. Yeah. That's all very much, uh, <laughs> those are very much autistic traits, uh, and things that can definitely cause confusion. So yeah, I, I think it is fascinating to me how well the character of data represents someone who is autistic without having been designed that way. Mm. Well, also when you're talking about body language, the other thing that jumped into my mind was that scene in um, Data's Day where he learns how to dance. Mm-hmm. The tap dancing, I was thinking of that too. Yeah. But then the ballroom dancing, he's like really rigid and he's, he's got this kind of plastic grin on his face. It's this sort of like, because I suppose because it's in this, region of like sort of romance and I don't know as soon as the music shifts into that kind of register he like becomes totally fake and actually in 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 theory uh, when he's trying to be romantic he sort of plays this really weird parody of a kind of what like sort of 1950s movie husband you know with Mm -hmm. a kind of honey I'm home home. sort of thing yeah exactly and it's all it's really uncomfortable and you know and she's like you know data stop it what the hell are you doing (laughs) you know because it's so uh it's too much and it's too it's it's I don't know yeah it's fake it's synthetic it's not it doesn't feel genuine at all I I mean when you were saying you know about being true to yourself it's not true to data in the least Mm -hmm. and that's why it it registers as so sort of uncomfortable. It's interesting that, you know, both Data and Seven have these episodes where they they have their kind of romance episode, you know, where they have to uh, experiment in those areas. Data's kind of goes wrong because he can't really, I don't know, we know he's fully functional, but he can't, he can't really <laughs> do the kind of the romance stuff. Seven, it sort of seems like she's doing better in some ways. And it's interesting, she obviously wants to, uh, I mean, I mentioned this idea of her, you know, skipping out on the social events and so on, but clearly she wants to be going to them because we see in the holodeck she's practicing. She's actually doing what, you know, you were talking about these kind of interventions or these therapies. Um, social scripts is one big thing uh, for uh, kids with autism where you, you know, you go through a kind of scenario in advance of, okay, so this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to, who you're going to, you, you, sort of planning out in advance effectively what it's going to look like, a social interaction. And that's literally what Seven is doing. She's practicing all these things um, so that she can then go and do them with other people. Um, and obviously, as we know, she does end up uh, controversially going out with Chakotay <laughs> somehow. <laughs> but it's interesting. But in the episode, she's not. She's not really awkward and stilted. Uh, I mean, I know there's this issue about, like, is she playing the piano passionately enough? But she she seems, to me anyway, to be doing pretty well throughout that episode. What's holding her back is this kind of... is something that can't be changed. Uh, you know, it's something to do with her biology or it's something to do with her uh, her implants or whatever, which I think is it's interesting. So it's like she's she's battling against her own physiology somehow to some extent um and there's this interesting question at the end of the episode where the doctor says you know it might be possible to change this but it's a big operation i don't know what the recovery is going to be like it's kind of uh and she says no don't you know i don't want to to do all of that it's not it's not so important to me to you know have romances and, and and you know experience all this stuff and i don't know if you watch the orville but they play quite a oh, yeah. similar kind of beat yes. in a recent episode of the orville which very sort much of in reverse me, uh yeah what, what because isaac was willing to do it uh but yes yeah you're right yeah yeah so that that's yes, what i meant exactly. by that. isaac so was, he willing was willing to do, to do it, it even though but... it would mean losing his memories which i think yes as we talk about many other things proves that he has emotions too he just doesn't Mm. necessarily recognize them (laughs) yeah and it's this really interesting question i mean that seemed to me i don't know about you i I felt like that was a more explicit 
kind of uh, allegory for these kinds of oh yeah questions around neurodivergence and um, and treatment and so on because literally he's given the choice like okay you can be it's a bit like there was there was that book this is on a different subject but there was a book with a great title why be happy when you could be normal uh, <laughs> he can be either uh, be himself but not be emotional and not be sort of what other people expect him to be or what his partner expects him to be in the relationship. Or he can be changed to be more loving and affectionate and uh, demonstrative, but he literally loses his identity because his whole personality has to get wiped in the process. So I thought that was a really interesting and quite stark way of presenting that. I mean, in a very, obviously everything the Orville does is in a kind of very Star Trekky way, but more more <laughs> yeah. on the nose in some ways than Star Trek has has done. That. I think yeah, the Orville has been, especially this season, has been sort of very heavy handed with their allegory. Not that that's a bad thing. I just that's how they've been doing it, and I think it's worked really well for them. Especially this this latest season of the Orville has been fantastic. I think yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. And it, it's the first time that it feels, I mean, I took a while to come on board with the Orville, I think. I know a lot of people like straight away were like, oh, this is the Star Trek we need, you know, all these kind of people hating on Discovery and loving the Orville. I never really got that because I thought it was a bit silly and kind of funny. And But I feel like in this I thought season, it was they, okay. the, the humour is almost, yeah, it was okay as a kind of spoof, but it was a bit, it felt slightly pointless. This season, it does genuinely feel like uh they're doing it really well do you know what i mean like and they and they've kind of not quite forgotten that it's meant to be a comedy but it's like that's that's very much just but they're doing it as well as a lot of star trek did it back in the day uh on a kind of episode by episode basis and granted they're you know they're only doing like nine or ten of them rather than you know 25 a year or something but I think the switch to streaming really benefited them because if you've mm. no- I'm sure you've noticed the episodes this season a lot of them have been like an hour and a half long. They're really and, long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that has really the the switch to streaming that gave them time to make the to make the new season. Like I mean it's been like it's been years since season 2. They I mean there was a pandemic in there but even even if you take out the time time off for COVID in the middle there, it took them a very long time to make this season. And that's because they, like, when they first announced the Switch to streaming, the reason they said it was so that they could take their time with creating it. And I think that really paid off because I, in the first season, I thought it was all right. Like, I enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was anything special. Uh, season two, I think they start really started to find their footing, and it was it did get a lot better, I think, uh, in season two. But then season three has just been phenomenal. Yeah. One of the things I like about this season of The Orville, and I am conscious that I sound like one of those guys who, who has like been saying this for years, uh, and <laughs> I was quite hostile to it, is that they... So they... They, they did this episode with Isaac. They've also done this whole trans allegory uh, with the the daughter of um, Bortus and Clyden. Um, and that whole Topa, story being yeah. very powerful. Yeah, Topa. Um, and I, I just think it's kind of interesting because we recently talked on Primitive Culture about um, trans representation in Discovery and this kind of having sort of explicitly trans characters have it, you know, pre- prior to that, having, uh, you know, gay characters, not not doing all these things allegorically. Whereas like in the 90s, okay, so if these issues were touched on, it would be an allegory uh, about an alien species that, you know, allows you to tell that story. Now it seems more like, yeah, we're going to have representation on a more direct level. So we're going to have gay representation by just having gay characters. We don't, It doesn't have to be an allegory. It doesn't have to be complex like that uh okay the the trill one is a little bit or the 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 trans one is a little bit complicated by the fact that there's this trill storyline so it's kind of like is it is it sort of i was gonna say straight representation that's a very bad way of putting it is it (laughs) is it kind of direct (laughs) representation in a sense of like we're casting trans actors as trans characters or is it also a kind of allegorical representation because we're dealing with this species where people have uh different lives as different genders but I just thought it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, does Star Trek need, I mean, maybe that's the case with Sylvia Tilly. She's human. She has these, these traits and, and the same with Barkley, I suppose, but like seven data, these are characters, Spock, even these are characters who they're sort of allegorically neurodivergent, but maybe not literally 
neurodivergent. I mean, maybe they are, maybe seven of nine, you know, maybe Annika Hansen would have been anyway, but we sort of take it that it's to do with her experience with the Borg and so on that a lot of this stuff comes from. I think Barkley absolutely is. That's true, I think, yeah. So, so, So maybe they've kind of done that already. Is it important that they are explicit about it at some point do you think i mean is it would it make a difference for because they had this whole thing with spock and his basically dyslexia didn't they that came up in discovery uh which obviously never been mentioned before i mean would it make a difference insofar as it makes a difference for representation to have gay characters to have trans characters and so on to have a character who doesn't just seem to be neurodiverse but actually is explicitly neurodiverse i mean do you think that's something that they i would love to see that yeah i I don't necessarily think it's quite the same as not having gay characters and now having and now actually having uh, gay characters in Star Trek. I don't think it's quite the same because we definitely for me personally, and I obviously cannot speak for all neurodivergent people or even all autistic people, uh, Mm. but I see representation in a lot of these characters, even that are not explicitly neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. And I, I I would love to see someone who's explicitly stated as such, but I don't think it would have as significant an impact for me as, say, Paul Snamitz does for gay people. That makes a lot of sense. I, I suppose it's also about these kind of... I don't know. The, yeah, there, there's questions of representation. There's also kind of questions of visibility. And sometimes mm-hmm. some of these things, they are you know, more or less uh, visible for various reasons with different people. Um, and that's sort of part of the whole spectrum, I guess, isn't it? That, that is mm-hmm. kind of part of the experience and part of that, of the phenomenon. But yeah, who knows? Maybe that's somewhere, you know, we've got plenty of Star Trek series uh, coming <laughs> yes. down the pipeline. <laughs> we have, uh, according to, to... Sooner or later. According to San Diego Comic-Con, we have two more shows that they are currently working on. That they have not yet announced. So, yeah, we've got all sorts of things going on. And it wouldn't surprise me if we do get a neurodiverse representation explicit in the show. I I think it certainly will come at some point. Neurodiversity in infinite combinations, right? That's got to be, you know. (laughs) Couldn't get more Star Trek, could you? Um, Well, Thad, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this subject and uh, getting your um, personal take on it and and your thoughts on how this has played out over Star Trek's history. Um, Before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you online and what else you've been up to. Uh, Best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Tyrannicus. That's T-Y-R-A-N-I-C-U-S, where I talk a lot about Star Trek. I have been slowly uh, going through my incredibly mad plan of watching all of Star Trek alphabetically by episode title. Uh, And I am currently in the letter D. Now that, without wanting to like stereotype or whatever, that <laughs> feels to me like a kind of. <laughs> this is like, I don't know what. How would you how would you describe that? It's it's like because it's it's sort of arbitrary and it's it, it's it's rules, isn't it? I suppose that's the thing. Is it's like about imposing rules uh, mm-hmm. and and the, the the enjoyment of the rules, whereas yes. uh, someone <laughs> oh, yeah. else might no, be horrified that, by that, that idea. Very, it is a very neurodivergent yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, but I it's also it. a lot of fun because. As someone who has seen all of Star Trek multiple times, it keeps it fresh because you're never watching the same show more than one or two episodes at a time. And so I would definitely not recommend it for first time viewers, but <laughs> it is an interesting thing if you're not a first time viewer and you just want I know, an interesting way to rewatch. <laughs> what do you start with? If you were a first time viewer, what, what was the first, what was the first? Letter A. Or did you do the numbers first? I did like numbers first because one, Microsoft o. Excel decided yeah. <laughs> to put them first when I was organizing them. Um, okay, so I, cool. so the first one I started yeah. with was 1159 followed by 1100 or however it is. And then um, yeah. there's another number that I'm forgetting. Um, but th- then I went into the A's. Um, and okay. uh, each t- when I get to the end of a letter, I then like go through and I say what my top five were and then what my least favorite was. Uh, it almost mm-hmm. felt like a cheat when I got to C because I obviously couldn't pick a least favorite other than Code of Honor. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I've 
haven't done it in a little bit, but I'm going to get back into D very soon. Uh, but anyway, you can find me where I talk about Star Trek and all sorts of other things. Um, if you want to listen to me talking about Star Trek, uh, I am on uh, the Infinite Diversity podcast on the BQN network, uh, where we talk about every new episode of Star Trek after it comes out. So we're on a kind of hiatus at the moment, though we will have an episode coming out very soon about the Comic-Con news. Uh, but that's a lot of fun. We talk about Star Trek a lot. Uh, and then if you want to hear me talk about something other than Star Trek, I have another podcast with my friend Carl called License to Spiel. That's license spelled with a C like the British do, where we talk about the James Bond films. Fantastic. Another uh, great, uh, you know, in-depth topic yes. to, to, to dive into there for sure. Um, but interestingly, like uh, one with very different I suppose associations to Star Trek, right? I mean, like the jocks do like the James. The, the, the kids who bullied us at school for liking Star Trek wouldn't have a problem with that one. So it's, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because I don't think that happens anymore. I don't think kids get bullied at school for liking Star Trek anymore. Um, is that true? I know people always say that. I always sort of wonder whether that's just kind of wishful thinking. Do you think that genuinely is true? It's I, like it might be wishful thinking. I mean, I'm obviously not a kid, but it just seems as though Star Trek and nerd culture is much more mainstream now than it was when we were kids. Well, I hope that's like, true. The mm. Marvel movies are huge now. Like, that's, like, just entered popular culture, basically. Uh, but isn't that... You see, I sort of always thought that's, like, you know, Star Wars was always big, but Star Trek was mm-hmm. seen as, like, you know, geeky and, and cliquey and... I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I really hope that that's, that that is true. And maybe if that is true, then also, y- you know, obviously younger people are more accepting of... Uh, hopefully of neurodiversity than than older people maybe you know some of those stigmas so. and so on have kind of fallen away um so yeah maybe that's all part of the same kind of you know movement into the future well as as star trek fans i think we would all like to believe that we are moving towards a better future we can only hope yeah well in the meantime it's been great talking to you thad thank you so much for joining me You're blended all right.